I apologize for running late. Uh, just before I left my office, I grabbed a water. And you know, they make these water bottles so thin now that it is amazing. And it had been nicked with something. And when I picked it up, it just started spraying everywhere. And I couldn't stop it. And I got it all over me and all over the floor and just had a, a big mess in there, which was difficult to, to clean up. And I thought, it's going to look like I had an accident when I go in there. So uh, I was trying my best to clean it up, but um, those things happen. All right, we are in Acts chapter 13. Let's bow together and have a prayer, and then we'll begin. Our dear Father in heaven, we're so very thankful for the opportunity that we have to be together tonight. We're thankful, Lord, that we can study your word and that it gives us everything we need to be faithful to you and to have a home in heaven eternally. Our Father, we're thankful for the blood of Christ that was shed for our redemption. We pray that you'll be with our country at this time. Our Father, we know that our leadership has desperately departed from you and godly truths. We pray that uh, something can be done, that they can turn back to that which way is right. Our Father, we pray that you'll be with each of us, that we will let our light shine, that we will resist temptations that we face each day, that you will bless us as we seek to glorify you. Our Father, we ask that you'll go with us through our class tonight. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, um, two weeks ago, last week I was in a gospel meeting. Two weeks ago, I showed you a little video that I had put together that traces the book of Acts from chapter 13 forward. And I want to show you that again tonight because starting in Acts chapter 13, the focus is on the Apostle Paul and his labors. Basically, from 13 through the end of the book, which is 28 chapters, you've got Paul's missionary journeys and his trip to Rome, his imprisonment, uh, and the, the rest of Paul's life. And so I'm going to show you this little video. It gives you an overview, and it tells you everything that the book of Acts is about. And uh, then we will pick up and go from there. See if I can get this to play full screen here. Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead in approximately 33 AD. Originally, Jerusalem is the center of the church, but by the time we... I'm trying to get it to go full screen here. Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead in approximately 33 AD. Originally, Jerusalem is the center of the church, but by the time we get to Acts chapter 11, that is changing to Antioch. You remember in Acts chapter 8, there was a persecution and they were scattered from Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 12, the apostle Paul begins what we call the first missionary journey, he is sent from the church in Antioch. 
he goes into southern Turkey. On his second journey, he goes back and he sees those churches again. Then on his third journey, he's raising support for the poor in Jerusalem, and he goes back to the original churches. He goes to Ephesus, where he's going to spend two years. He writes a letter to the church at Corinth. We call that 1 Corinthians. Then he goes back to Macedonia, which is the area where we find Philippi, Berea, and Thessalonica. And he writes a second letter to the Corinthians from Philippi. We call that 2 Corinthians. Then he travels down from Macedonia back to Corinth, and he stays a good while in Corinth. While he's in Corinth, he writes a letter to the church at Rome. Then he leaves Corinth. He goes back to Macedonia, back to Philippi again. This is going to be his last time in Philippi. He goes back to the coast and then to Jerusalem, where he ends up being arrested. After his arrest, he spends two years in a jail in Caesarea along the ocean. And then, because he is a Roman citizen, he appeals to the emperor. And after those two years, he then travels toward Rome. He is shipwrecked on his way to Rome. When he finally arrives, he is under kind of a house arrest And while he's there in Rome, he writes what we call the prison epistles. That uh, is a summary of the book of Acts for the rest of the book. And I think it's good to see the overview, and then we know where we're going with this. So I think that's helpful. So we're going to pick up tonight at chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and and Barnabas are at the church at Antioch, and the church sends them out. Thus, they are called, they're both called apostles because they are ones who have been sent. They go to uh, Seleucia that is on the coast. Let me see if I can zoom in here. Here we go. You can see that they are in Antioch. And they're going to go to Seleucia. That is right here, the little dot that's on the coast. And then they are going to go to the island of Cyprus. They're going to go first to Salamis. They're going to preach in the synagogue there. And then they're going to travel over to the other side of the island to a city called Paphos. When they get to Paphos, they're going to meet a man there whose name is Sergius Paulus. He is a government official. The Bible says that he is an intelligent man but he is a follower of a false prophet who is named Elymas. This man is a sorcerer. Does anybody remember his other name? Bar-Jesus. His name is Bar-Jesus or Elymas. It's very interesting to me that he is described as a devout man. He's a sincere man. He's an intelligent man, and yet he's following this sorcerer. He's following this false prophet. How does that happen? How do you get someone who's intelligent and sincere, and they're following this guy who is a total quack? I mean, he is, uh, he's just a, a, a fake. How does that happen? What's that? Still happens today. This is just like uh, Simon the Sorcerer from Acts chapter 8. Remember, the Bible says he had fooled everyone from the least to the greatest 
for a long time giving off that he had the power of God. And so the same thing is happening today. You've got intelligent, sincere people that are sometimes fooled by people such as this. So what happens is Paul and Barnabas begin preaching, and this man, Sergius Paulus, is interested in hearing the gospel. And so having some authority, he sends for Paul and Barnabas to come and speak to him. Now, I want to take a second here and um, point out a couple of things. I've got to get this thing where it will zoom better. This is not good like it is. Can you all see that up there? Is that readable? Okay, we'll just go with that. I'll have to figure out how to get it to go full screen later. The Bible says he's eager to hear the Word of God. Now, I want you to notice some passages with me here. Matthew 7 and verse 7 says, Ask, and it will be given unto you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he that seeks finds. And to him that knocks, it will be opened. Now, I want you to think about this. If you've got a man who is truly seeking the truth, will he find it? You know, sometimes people will ask questions like, you know, what about the person who's in the jungle? Or what about the person who is in this remote area? How will he find the truth? I believe the promise in God's word is, if a person is seeking, the Lord is going to work it out. If a person is truly seeking the truth providentially, God can make this happen. Look at this next one. Jeremiah 29, 13, and you will seek me, and find me. Now notice this part, when you seek me with all of your heart. If a person truly seeks the Lord with all of his heart, will he find him? Yes. And so if a person, just according to the, these two passages, if a person doesn't find the Lord, what would you conclude from that? Okay, he's either not seeking or he is not sincerely seeking with all of his heart. I think you have to conclude that because the Lord said, if you seek me with all of your heart, you will find. If you seek, you will find. The Lord is all-powerful and he will and can provide a way. And it makes me think about uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. He is out uh, traveling with his caravan and he's in his chariot and he's miles and miles from anything He's reading Isaiah 53, he's digging into the scrolls, he's reading about Jesus, he wants to know the truth, and he wants to know who is this man. And the Lord speaks to Philip and he sends him. He says, go to this man. Now, miracles are not happening today, but God's providence is still happening today. And so the Lord still has the power and the ability to reach those who are truly seeking. When he says, if you seek me with all of your heart, you will find. That's not something that was just true in Bible times. It is something that is true today. And so here's Sergius Paulus. He's a good man. He's a sincere man. He's under the influence of this fake, this sorcerer, but he's interested. And so he's seeking. And here come Paul and Barnabas. They land on this island. They end up coming to his city, and they start teaching him. Now, one more thing I want you to notice, look at this passage. 2 Thessalonians 2 and, 2 and verse 11, because they did not receive the love of the truth. Now, 
Stop right there for a minute. Contrast that with what we just read in Jeremiah 29, 13. You've got one group of people who seeks the Lord with all of their heart. Now here's the second group of people because they did not love the truth. Would you agree with me that these are two completely opposite groups of people? Here is one who seeks the Lord with all of their heart, and here is one who does not love the truth that they might be saved. Now listen to verse 7, or verse 11, and for this reason God will send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now a lot of times people struggle with this passage because they think this sounds like God is causing them to believe a lie. Is that what it says? God's not causing them to believe a lie. What does it say? They do not love the truth that they might be saved. They have rejected the truth, and so they receive a strong delusion. When a person rejects the truth, he's going to look for something else. It's, it reminds me of Pharaoh. The Bible sometimes, in the book of Exodus, says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And sometimes the Bible says that God hardened his own heart. Which one is it? Did Pharaoh harden his own heart or did God harden his heart? There's a sense in which both of them are true. Because when God said to Pharaoh, you let my people go, Pharaoh's reaction to that was, oh, I'm not going to do it. And he hardened his heart. You see, there's a sense in which God hardened his heart. God gave him a message that he reacted to in which it hardened his heart and he rejected the truth. Same thing happens today. Some people seek the Lord with all of their hearts. Some people, when they hear it, they just get angry. That is very interesting. So here's this man, Sergius Paulus. He's interested. He seems to be a true seeker. He sends for Paul and Barnabas. Now let's pick up at verse 8. Do I have a reader tonight? David, are you reading? Okay, would uh, start reading in Acts 13.8. Okay. Out loud, please. Yeah, I got you. Okay. <laughs> I was having to count to eight. I finally made it okay. to eight. <laughs> but Alamus the sorcerer, for his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Okay, this is what happens. The proconsul, Sergius Paulus, he starts listening, and he's starting to believe the truth. This guy's got a sincere heart, and he is interested in obeying the gospel. Elymas, Bar-Jesus, sees this, and it says that he immediately starts trying to turn him away from the truth. Why is he trying to turn him away from the truth? This is where we left off two weeks ago. He's going to lose his influence. This is a man of power. I'm guessing he's a man that probably had some money. I've got the idea that he probably was giving some of that money to Bar-Jesus. And so he doesn't want to lose this guy. And so he's going to do whatever he can to stop him from believing the truth. Do you think there are those today who try to stop people from believing the truth? Of course. People haven't changed. The same thing is happening today. All right, um, in fact, this is written in the Greek in the imperfect tense, 
which indicates this was ongoing. In other words, there were probably several encounters here where they're trying to teach him and he's stepping in and trying to stop this. So this is kind of a back and forth taking place. All right, verse 9. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. Okay, this says Saul, who is also called Paul. This is the first time he's ever called Paul in the book of Acts. And from this point forward, he is always called Paul. And I'm glad for that because I always call him Paul. And when he's Saul, it gets confusing. Um, people have speculated why his name was changed. It doesn't say that God changed his name. Sometimes God would change people's names. He changed Jacob to Israel, and um, he changed Abram to Abraham. And there are different accounts like that in the Bible. But we don't know about Saul having his name changed to Paul. Augustine, the early Christian writer, he argued that Paul, Saul changed his name to Paul because it is a word that meant, that meant little and that he counted himself the least of all saints. And so he said, I'm going to go by that name, basically meaning I'm insignificant. Um, others reject that. They say that he changed it to that because of a Hebrew root meaning that means one who is chosen. I don't know. Was he going with the name that I've been chosen by God for this work? One that means I'm insignificant? I don't know. If it mattered, the Lord would have told us. So it's also interesting here that thus far we're reading about Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas is always taking the lead. Now it says the one who, the, then Saul, who is called Paul. And from this point forward, it's going to be Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. So it seems like Barnabas was the out front man. He's the man who's taking the lead, and now this flip-flops. Why is that even worth mentioning? There is no indication whatsoever that Barnabas begrudged that. How would some people feel about that if, if they're the lead man, they're the one in charge, and, and now this flip-flops and the other guy is the more... Uh, significant, the leader, how would some people react to that? What's that? Okay, some people might carry a grudge. You think jealousy might come into play? You think, um, you think there's ever jealousy between preachers? You know, it's interesting because um, uh, I'm going to mention this in a few minutes, but I did a sermon a few years ago on envy. And I went to uh, sermonillustrations.com, and I was looking for some illustrations. I couldn't believe how many illustrations there were about envy that were written by preachers about their own envy. And so this is very significant. They're envious of another preacher who got more speaking appointments or who got more compliments or who uh, had more people gather around or whatever. But what you see with Paul and Barnabas is it doesn't seem to be that way at all. Toby? Did... <laughs> well, that's interesting. Uh, he wouldn't have known that, but he would have known that um, uh, Paul is now the lead man. Uh, he, would have seen, he would have seen that turn in, in behavior, but uh, yeah, touche. <laughs> All right, uh, verse number 10. And said... O oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you 
son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. You will not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord. Okay. This guy, Elymas, is trying to turn Sergius Paulus away from the truth, and Paul turns and looks at him. We're going to read in a minute. He fastens eyes on this guy, and listen what he says. Oh, full of all deceit, not just deceit, but all deceit, and all fraud, you son of the devil, an enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? Wow, man, that is strong stuff, isn't it? I mean, to say to somebody, you are a son of the devil, you're an enemy of all righteousness, how would people feel if the preacher said something like that today? <laughs> fired? Yeah, he'd get fired for sure. <laughs> you know, I want you to look at this passage. This is Titus chapter 1 and verse 10. This is talking about elders. In fact, I want you to look here. This is in the qualifications of elders. Titus chapter 1 and verse 5 says that they were to appoint elders in every city. And then in verse 6, if a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, faithful children, da 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 da, it goes through all of these things. And then you get to uh, verse number 10. Immediately, the next verse, verse 9, gives the, the last qualifications of elders. Then verse 10 says, for, what does that mean? You've got to have qualified men for, that is, here's the reason you've got to have qualified men, for there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, now listen, whose mouths must be stopped. They subvert whole households. You know what he's saying here? One of the qualifications of an elder is that he's got to have enough backbone to stop the mouths of the deceivers and those who would subvert households. If you've got somebody who's making trouble in the church and stirring up things in the church, elders have to be, to be able to come forward and deal with that. See, that's strong stuff, isn't it? We live in a society that just doesn't like, we're very concerned about offending people, but what you see in the Bible is they're dealing with serious things in a serious way. And that's interesting. So anyway, Paul looks at him and he says, you fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of righteousness. Verse number 11. Now, indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Okay, Paul looks at him and he says, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and he struck him blind. He said, for a while, you're not going to be able to see. Um, it made me wonder, do you think he ever obeyed the truth? Bible doesn't say. That was the first thing that went through my mind is, he got struck blind for this. Maybe this, is, maybe this would wake him up. But then I thought about the description. He's full of all deceit and all fraud, a son of the devil, an enemy of all righteousness. Will you not cease perverting the straight way of the Lord? You think this guy ever obeyed the gospel? I am doubting it. I really, really doubt it. This description is a heart that is corrupt. It doesn't matter what he sees. He is not going to obey the gospel. 
Yeah. Yeah, he said you're going to be blind. He said you're going to be blind for a season. I take it that what Saul, uh, Paul was saying is, I'm going to strike you blind, but it's not going to be permanent. It's, it's going to last for a period. I got to thinking about this. This is a miracle, but it's a punitive miracle. It's a miracle in which a person was being punished. Can you think of any other miracles in the Bible where someone was, was punished? Okay, well, I didn't think about that. Of course, that was God doing it, but uh, yeah, that's true, the plagues. I guess if you think about that, there were a lot of punitive miracles if you look at it that way. I guess the uh, plagues upon Egypt, all of those would have been punitive miracles. Yes, sir? Um, yeah, you got people stricken with leprosy. How about Ananias and Sapphira? We just covered that one. They were struck dead. This one occurred to me. Do you remember in 2 Kings chapter 2, there was an account about Elisha and the bears? Y'all remember that? 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 23 says, Then Elisha went up from there to Bethel, and as he was going up the road, some young men came from the city, and they mocked him, and they said to him, Go up now, you bald head. Get up, you bald head. And so he turned around, and he looked at them, and he pronounced a curse on them in the name of the Lord, and two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 young men. I have thought about that before, and that's a pretty stunning thing that um, as a result of them mocking him, he sends bears and mauls them, apparently kills them. Yes, sir? That's true. That's true. He was punished. Uh, not, not really a, um, a punitive miracle, but yeah, he, he's punished. Um, this account disturbed me a long time about Elisha and the bears uh, for a couple of reasons. It sounds almost like it's kids, and it sounds like they're making fun of him for being bald, and neither one seems to be the case. When you go back and you look at the Hebrew, number one, this seems to be men that uh, would have been young men. They are probably men in their 20s, 30s. They are young adults. And when you go back and you look at this phrase, bald head, it carries with it the idea in the Hebrew of an empty head. They were calling him an idiot. They were calling him a fool. And so they're mocking. You've got these young men who are mocking the prophet of God is what it amounts to. And as a result of that, he sends it. This wasn't a guy who was just really sensitive because he was bald. That's not what's going on here, so... Okay, you've got a punitive miracle taking place. Now, verse number 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Okay, after Bar-Jesus is struck blind, the Bible says, then the proconsul believed. What made him believe? Okay, he, he saw the miracle that had been done, but then notice what it says, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. That is interesting. He saw the miracle, but the miracle is not what converted him. It was the teaching that converted him, and I think that is significant. Do you remember when, in Luke chapter 16, 
when um, the rich man dies and he lifts up his eyes in torment and he's worried about his brothers, he says to Abraham, I've got brothers that are still living. Please send Abraham that he can go and teach them so that they won't come here like I am. Do you remember what Abraham says to Lazarus? They've got Moses and the prophets. If they won't hear them... Now, at this point, it appears that this is probably a New Testament period. So Moses and the prophets, they would have been dead. But what he's saying is they've got the writings. They've got the Old Testament. They've got the Bible. They've got Moses and the prophets. If they won't believe the written word of God, they won't believe even though there is a miracle. That is, Lazarus could come back from the dead. If they won't believe the Word of God, they're not going to be converted just because of the miracle. I thought about this because it says he believed, and I thought, at the miracle, but keep reading, and it says he was astonished at the teachings of the Lord. The power is in the Word. Very significant there. All right. Um, it's also interesting, I was reading uh, from a historical standpoint in 1912, there was a man who did a survey of the Bible lands. His name was Sir William Ramsey. He discovered a monument in Antioch that contains this name. It's a statue of a lady, and it says, Sergia Paula. Sergia Paula. Does that sound familiar? What does that sound like? Sounds just like this man, doesn't it? Sergius Paulus, this is Sergia Paula. It seems to be the female version of this man's name, and it is believed that this is the daughter of the proconsul there in Cyprus, and there was evidence there indicating that this Sergia Paula was a Christian. That's very interesting because Sergius Paulus believed, and then uh, 2,000 years later, there's a statue found to his daughter, and there's indication that she was a Christian. And so, very, very fascinating. All right, verse 13. Now, now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Okay. It says, I've uh, kind of highlighted the trip here. You can see that they are in Paphos, and they get in a boat, and they sail over here to Perga. And then they're going to end up going up here to Antioch in Pisidia. But it says that when they get to Perga, John leaves them. And he heads back to Jerusalem, which is back down here. Why did he leave them? Good question. We don't know. What we do know is the trip from... Perga, which is here, to Pisidia, is about a hundred-mile journey, and supposedly this is an area that is very dangerous. It is, um, you're taking your life in your hands, there are robbers, it is a treacherous area, and it has oftentimes been speculated when they got to Perga, before they made this trip, that John Mark says, hey, I don't want a part of that. Whatever the reason is, it's significant. Because when we get two chapters later, John Mark is going to want to go with them again. And Barnabas says, let's bring him. And Paul says, no, I'm not taking him because he left us before. 
And it's going to get to the point, because of what's happening right here, Paul absolutely refuses to take John Mark, and Barnabas is going to insist that they take John Mark. You remember that Barnabas and John Mark are, are either cousins or nephew and uncle, depending on the language, but they're relatives. Barnabas is going to insist, we got to give him a chance, and Paul is going to say, no, he left us back then, I am not taking them, and it's going to get so bad in Acts chapter 15 that Paul and Barnabas are going to separate, and they are going to go their own separate ways and end up having two journeys uh, because the, the contention gets so strong between them about this. All right? Um, verse number 14. I'm going to go through these verses rather quickly because oftentimes when you start going through a long passage, it can get really drawn out. But verse 14, they departed from Perga, and they're going to go up to Pisidia. When they get there, they're going to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day like they always did. And verse 15 says, After the reading of the law and the prophets, the ruler of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, do you have any word of exhortation for the people? Say on. I read that it was common in the synagogue, if there were visitors and they were Jewish males, they would give them an opportunity to get up and say something. And so that's what's happening here. This was common procedure. And so they reached out to Paul and Barnabas and said, do you have any words of encouragement for us? You're visiting here. And then verse 16, Paul stood up, motioning with his hand, and he says, men of Israel who fear God, listen. Now, Paul is going to give the same speech that he always gives. In verse 17, he's going to say, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers. So he's going to go back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he says in verse 17, they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And he's going to talk about the time that they're in Egypt. Then in verse 18, he's going to talk about the wilderness wandering. Verse 19, he's going to talk about how they came out of the wilderness wandering. God destroyed seven nations as they came into the land of Canaan. Verse 20, he's going to talk about 450 years where they were living under the judges. Verse 21, he talks about the king. He mentions Saul. Verse 22, he mentions David being the king. And then in verse 23, he says, From this man's seed, that is David, according to the promise, God is going to raise up a Savior, Jesus. And so he's, he goes back and he traces this. There was a promise made to Abraham. And then he says, we go through all the history. What he's doing is he's showing them that the Old Testament was fulfilled. So it gets to King David, and he says, from his seed, Jesus is going to come. Verse 24, John preached this man, Jesus that repentance would come to all of Israel. Verse 26, he's going to say to you, the word of salvation has been sent. And verse 27, he is going to say, you have heard this, the message that I am preaching, it has been taught in the synagogues. The Old Testament proclaims this man, Jesus. He came to you just as it was prophesied. Verse 28, he says there was no cause of death in him but you ask Pilate to put him to death, and they did. Verse 29, you took him down from the tree. Verse 30, God raised him up from the dead. Verse 31, he was seen for many days, 40 days. Verse 32, we declare to you the glad tidings, the promise which was made to our fathers. And then verse 38, 
He's going to say, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. Verse 39, And by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified under the law of Moses. So I've kind of given you a summary of the sermon, but what he does is he starts with Abraham and he traces the promise. And then he says, this has been preached to the synagogues. You've grown up listening to this. You've heard this. You should have known this. What I'm telling you is it's all been fulfilled. Forgiveness of sins came through this man. He came and you crucified him. And then he's going to say to them, you can get justification, forgiveness of your sins through him, and you could not get it through the law of Moses. Now, that was the final bell, but next week I want to talk about, uh, I might be gone next week, I forget. But I want, I want you to think about this. He says you could not be justified under the law of Moses. Can you think of anyone who was justified under the law of Moses, who was righteous, who was perfect, who was holy? Okay, well, Jesus was, because he never violated the law. Just be thinking about that, and we will uh, pick up there uh, either next week or the week after.